the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast with Ian Tullock and Anthony Petrielli. Welcome to the MLHS Podcast. My name is Ian Tullock. I'm here with Anthony Petrielli. How you doing, Anthony? Our first morning podcast. We delayed yeah, I, it because the Leafs played on Tuesday night and you, the people, asked for this podcast to come after, so I'm ready with coffee. And I thought that yesterday was today, so I woke up early yesterday for no reason. So I feel like I'm playing on the second half of the back-to-back here. I'm feeling great. <laughs> and I died at the messages on my phone being like, hey, I'm here. And I'm like, I'm still sleeping. Yeah, you know when you send a text message and no one's responded, so you send another one and then another one, and then you're just sitting there wondering, wait, am I the one who screwed up here? And then you look at the date on your calendar. Oh, yep, yep, I was the one who screwed up here. You know, the demented thing is for a second, I actually thought, like, I read it and I was like, oh, shit, I, it was my bad. And then I was, no, I know what day it is. Ian doesn't know what day it is. <laughs> <laughs> but for a second, I felt bad. <laughs> uh, so the Leafs uh, just came off of a loss to the Winnipeg Jets. We're recording this the morning after their Tuesday night game. So this is three losses in a row now for the Maple Leafs. What's funny is that in my head, I haven't thought of it that way because they've outchanced their opponent in all three of those games. Uh, strong performances from Thatcher Demko and Connor Hellebuck are definitely a big part of the reason they lost those games. But I know that that's going to lead to some talk in this uh, market about the team's performance and how we go about evaluating it. What are your takeaways from their last few games? Because obviously a three-game losing streak, you'd think that there'd be a lot to talk about. Personally, I'm not as low on the team after these last few games as a lot of people are, but I can understand why frustrations with goaltending have come up right now. First three-game losing streak in regulation under Sheldon Keefe, right? This is that is, right? I think so. First time three in regulation, I think. Definitely this season, of course, uh, but it might be in general. So I thought they got goalied in all three, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, so the first one was almost like a schedule loss. Right, like it was their third game and fourth nights on a Western Canada road trip. Vancouver was fresh. They stopped the Leafs, skating towards the start of the third period. There, yeah, they looked kind of they looked really tired in the third period. Like you could see it. Sometimes you watch and you say these guys are tired, and that game kind of felt like that. The second game, their PK goes zero percent. It's hard to win games when your PK goes zero percent. It just is, right? The other team's goalie plays well. You can't kill a penalty. That's a pretty bad recipe. The third game, so in part, yes, to they got goalied. Third game, they obviously just got goalied. I mean, what is there? Connor Hellebuck. Scoring chances were 51-20 in Toronto's favor, all situations. That's shots from the slot. 51 for Toronto, 20 for Winnipeg. Connor Hellebuck's really good. Did, did even the Jets just play to it? Because in the third period, they didn't move. They, they completely like, caved in. Yeah, they turtled, and they just kind of hoped for the best. And sometimes, I mean, that happens, score effects. But even in the first two periods, Toronto controlled the run of play. They controlled the run of scoring chances. And Connor Hellebuck just outplayed Frederick Anderson. Sometimes that's going to happen. But you brought up the penalty kill. I know that's something that you've wanted to talk about the last few days, especially, again, when you give up uh, two penalty kill goals against. That's something that you're going to want to talk about. What's interesting about the least penalty kill is that if you look at the metrics, uh, shots against, expected goals against, scoring chances against, they rank pretty well in that re regard, top 10, top 5 in most of those metrics. But their save percentage is brutal on the penalty kill. That's not a stat that tends to be repeatable. So that's one where I'm wondering, are these backdoor passes? Are these ones where Frederick Anderson doesn't have a chance? Or is this just a bit of randomness on the penalty kill where Anderson's letting in a few ones that in the future he's going to stop and this isn't something we should be worrying about too much? Well, I think that, I think that some bad goals have just been happening on the PK, but not necessarily Frederick Anderson, right? Like, like Michael Hutchinson let in a Jake Vertanen wrist shot from almost the goal line off the rush, that short side high. Freddie has let in his fair share too. I think he gets beat on tips quite a bit. I mean, last night he got beat on two goals that were tip shots. I think a lot of NHL goalies get yeah. beat on tips. It's one of the most high percentage shots out there. Yeah, and I, I think that's the way to go if, if you're pretty much any team, right? Let's put pucks on net and let's have our guy screening, try to get a stick on it, try to hit a rebound, whatever the case is. 
But yeah, we talked about it a little bit last night in terms of, you know, that save percentage on the PK is not really a repeatable thing. It, it fluctuates wildly. I'm not going to say that Freddie's generally been fine. I think even last night he kind of gets the rap, but I mean, four goals, two of them were tips. One was his own guy tipping it. One was just a brutal line change with a cross crease play. And the fourth one, any person watching it live who didn't go, Oh, when that play, when, when Appleton pulled it over and went around back the other way. That was after the Morgan Riley turnover. Yeah. Like anyone is lying to themselves. They saw that coming. I know evaluating goaltenders after every single game and doing it for a couple of years in a row. Now you, you start to learn how fans kind of litigate goaltenders. They'll go through every single goal. And I remember back when Garrett Sparks was the goalie and there'd be five or six goals against, and you'd have fans say, Oh, we can't blame him for four of those. You can't blame him for five of those. And at some point, even though it's a high quality chance, you want your goaltender to stop it. You want them to make some saves. And it can be frustrating when the other team's goalie just goes on an absolute heater and your goalie plays okay. You're going to lose that game. That's just the nature of the sport of hockey. But if, if we're measuring Frederick Anderson's performance this year, some of the best goaltending metrics, if we look at something like uh, goals saved above expected at even strength, he's still in the top 15 it's not where you'd like to see him earlier in the year. He was in the top 10. I think if you even went a, a week or two back, he was in the top five at even strength. But like you said, it's the penalty kill save percentage that's really dragging him down. Did you say he was ranked 30th out of 31 starters in PK save percentage? I remember someone pulled up a metric like that the other day. Yeah, Alec pulled that up for us. Um, but at five on five save percentage, he's eighth out of, 30, out of 31. Yeah. So, so that's where I'm thinking, okay, five and five is what actually matters. There's much more repeatability there as a goaltender. Frederick Anderson has a long track record of being a strong goaltender at five and five. I know that in Toronto, there are frustrations with the goaltending that you don't trust him in the playoffs. But at some point for me, I'm just looking at the larger body of work and I see, you know what, this guy's a top 10 goal in the NHL. I still think he's in that department. I'm not sure if he's someone you want to re-sign into his 30s, and I think the Leafs have already kind of decided that internally. But what are your thoughts on his overall play? Because I know that Frederick Anderson, his performance, the way he's playing from night to night tends to be a storyline in Toronto. Yeah, I think he's, I think he's just a generally solid, above-average goalie. I'm not going to sit here and say he's a stud, but he's generally been solid. He's generally been above-average. I know people look at games like last night and they say, got to make a big save. And that's true. But I think some of that comes in moderation. He also, at one point, he stopped a Blake Wheeler breakaway to keep the Leafs within distance. I mean, that's making a save. What's the difference there? That's completely making a save. A lot of it's confirmation bias at the end of the day. You see what you want to see. You remember what you want to remember. Yeah. So people will look and say, well, he let him four. He's got to make a save. And I'm like, well, I mean, you can't really blame one any of the four. And he did make a huge save to actually keep the game. You know, when they made a four, three and there was a bunch of drama at the end, that was because Freddie stopped that breakaway to allow that to happen. So, you know what? They're not paying him eight, nine, $10 million a year. He doesn't have a, a Jacob Markstrom type contract. He's, he gets paid well. He's a good goalie, but you know, ultimately what you kind of touched on at the end of the day is, is the truth until he does something in the playoffs. He's been the second best goalie in every playoff series they've been in. And I kind of alluded to this yesterday. I, I mean, that would still be the case if they played the jets, it might still be the case if they play Calgary. Um, it could feasibly be the case if they play Montreal. I'm not saying it is, Straight up, Freddie has been better than Carey Price this year, this season so far. But we've also kind of seen that Carey Price can still kind of turn it on and Carey Price it a little bit at times. I don't know I if that's... I still wonder how much of that is overblown by a lot of people in the media who tend to remember what he was five years ago as opposed to what he is today. A hundred percent it is. I'm just saying if they got into a playoff series with them and Carey Price blacked out for a few weeks, would I be shocked? No. So what if Frederick Anderson blacked out for a week or two in the playoffs? These are things I, that happen. Sometimes. I would Remember be Mark shocked. Andre Fleury was labeled as a playoff choker for how many years? Almost a decade, basically. I still kind of think he went. 
<laughs> well, he went on that absolute tear with Vegas where he basically just dragged them to the cup final. Yeah, that team was really good too, though. They were. That wasn't a bad team. I'm just saying that with goaltenders, sometimes they go on heaters, and sometimes it, it, it doesn't matter how well your team plays if the other team's goalie is better. So they've been in four, they've been in four straight years of him not. So I'm not saying that he can't or he won't. I'm just saying that it's been four times and he hasn't. So that's what people are going to judge him on at the end of the day, right? It's the same thing with Tavares. We sit there, oh, is the second line going to be okay? I thought the second line has looked really good the past few games. Kerfoot and- looks good there. I mean, Kerfoot at left wing on the second line has been much more effective this season than he is at third line center. Last yeah. year, I know that that was something that people brought up, that, oh, Kerfoot's way better on the second line than he was at third line. I thought Kerfoot was pretty good on the third line last year, all things considered. Yeah, he but can't this year, shoot, though. Well, I mean, could he ever shoot? Nothing. That was the biggest thing. I remember pulling up his – There's a, you, you can get the zone entries, the zone exits, the shots, and the shot assists. He never shoots, and he always passes. And I remember a couple Colorado fans telling me, on a two-on-one, on a three-on-one, he'll, he'll have a yeah. perfect shooting position, and he'll be looking to pass. Or not even – like, he'll, he'll be on a two-on-two, and someone will pass it to him in the slot, and he'll look to make the extra pass – and, you know, as, a, as someone who watches a lot of soccer, I think that sometimes in hockey we, we say, oh, you got to get pucks on net. You got to shoot it when sometimes making the extra pass is the better play. With Kerfoot, you, you can genuinely see where, oh, man, you had a great shooting lane. You had a great shooting opportunity. And then you made a pass to a low percentage area. That's not necessarily the best play there. I if know William Elander set him no. up a few times the other night, got him in the slot, and he flubbed a few shots. And it's just – it can be frustrating when you see – talented players like Tavares and Neilander are looking to set up their line mates and they can't finish. And again, I mean, Jimmy VC was put in that spot because, Hey, he can finish. Maybe he's someone you get there with William Neilander. He'll get him an open net and he can put it in there with Kerfoot. No. It's weird because he's a great passer, but he can't finish. No, not. And if you watch two on ones and stuff, they've had a bunch shorthanded where he's been the guy carrying the puck down every time it's a pass. Every time it's team. No, there was a play well, against. Do you know who was passing it to on the PK there? <laughs> Jimmy VC, Ilya Mikheyev. It's like. Well, it's Mikheyev like nine times out of ten on a two-on-one, and he yeah. either whiffs it or puts it high or shoots it into the goalie's crest. Mikheyev leads the NHL in four v five expected goals, like a penalty kill expected goals. Do you know how many goals he has on the penalty kill? Zero. They don't have a shorthanded goal this season. Which I find shocking, considering how many odd man rushes they've generated. They're one of the top teams in the league at generating chances on the PK. But Mikheyev is forever destined to not score a shorthanded goal. It's so weird. So that's a concern I have about the Leafs PK slightly. So we talked a little bit about the save percentage. I do think they're a tad too aggressive in the neutral zone. And at some point, I know you're sitting there saying, it's going to even out. They're going to cash in some of these chances. I'm not 100% sure that's true. I think they have a ton of guys who can't finish that PK. And I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's worth the risk, right? to watch Kerfoot muffin a shot, to watch Mikheyev miss chance after chance, just Jimmy VC in general. I mean, Marner and Hyman are PK1. You'd think that those guys would pot a couple goals by the end of the year. Yeah, those guys aren't as aggressive, though, I find. It'll just be one. I think that's, that's really where I'm coming at. I think sometimes both forwards are too aggressive. It usually comes in the form of the Mikheyev's, Kerfoot's, VC where they're both pushing up and they'll create the odd turnover and get the two on one or whatever the case is. But at the detriment of, I I think teams have been slicing through them easily the last few games, just gaining the zone. Like early on, there were a bunch of PKs where I'm like, the other team is just not even in the Leafs zone. The, The Leafs are actually just holding fort in, in their zone on the PK with their speed, but that hasn't happened in the past few weeks really that much. Yeah, Nikolai Ehlers had 14 zone entries the other night, by the way. It's just one of my favorite players in the world to watch. Dude is unbelievable skating up and down the ice with the puck. But like you said, that's one of the most important ways of defending on the on the penalty kill. If you can prevent the other team from getting set up in the offensive zone in formation, that's the job right there. If you're playing a bit too aggressively with your forwards in the neutral zone, then you're going to expose someone like Zach Bogosian, who's not the most fleet of foot skater. He can get burned off the rush. 
backdoor pass. That actually happened. I, I want to say it was against uh, the Canucks where Bogosian yep. got beat down his wing. Brody wasn't able to take away the pass through the middle, which, by the way, that rarely happens. Brody's usually, I'd, I'd argue, he's Toronto's best player at taking away that pass through the so middle teams, of the ice. So teams know the move now. He got burned on it yesterday against the Jets. The dive and then the last second come around st- stick, stick swing. Yeah, Drew like, Doughty style. Teams, I mean, a pre-scout, any pre-scout will will note that at this point, but especially so when you play the same teams over and over again. Teams are going to, it's just, if they play Edmonton again, because he did it to Dreisaitl a few times, if Dreisaitl doesn't fake him and then cut in and score at some point this season, I'm going to be floored. It just means that Dreisaitl didn't get another two-on-one against Brody, but it's going to happen. Hey, he keeps blocking passages through the middle of the ice. I think the pre-scout on the Riley-Brody pair says, we're going to get some two-on-ones. It's yeah. Just, oh, <laughs> how many yeah. times has that pairing given up a two-on-one, and how many times has Brody slid down to block, that, uh, to block the pass? So. He's really good at it, though, and just his ability to kind of it, – it, he almost forward skates at the, def- at the opposing player and then just a little stick check off of him and transitions up ice – it's it's awesome. He he, it's like he almost skates at them and then kind of curls and then a, a stick where he's not just skating backwards and receiving what's happening. He's aggressively skating at them with a, a little stick check poke play. That's what a lot of the best rush defenders do is they kind of change it up sometimes on opposing forwards. You don't want to be too predictable. If you just kind of back up onto your goaltender every time, you're making life easier on them. Uh, the, the players with the best edge work in the world can kind of skate at a guy, banana peel, curl off, and keep that gap nice and tight. Travis Dermott's the guy I'm always going to bring up when it comes to that. <laughs> but, I mean, you, you can pick well, – if you watch uh, any Miro Heiskanen, he's one of the most fleet-of-foot skaters out there. You watch any Quinn Hughes, the way he's able to turn on his edges. It's that kind of modern 360-degree style of skating. that That's how you impact the game these days. It's not just north-south we want. We want you to be able to turn, pivot, and stay with a guy to maintain that tight gap in transition. And yet, what was Travis Dermott working on the past week? Fighting lessons from Zach Bogosian. And it's probably been his most impactful uh, <laughs> i mean when he's not icing the puck poor guy you know me you know how i will how not I take any slander on zach bogosian he has been oh, okay good. i thought you were gonna say travis dermot i'm like oh we're not slandering dermot thanks okay sweet we'll just skip no, past this talk i'm not slandering him I'm saying he's taking fighting lessons <laughs> the dermot bogosian pairing works at five and five they outshoot they out chance they outscore the opposition i like that pair i don't hate it yeah, I think sometimes people have to keep their expectations in check for a third pairing. That's a good third pairing. That's what a third pairing looks like. My only concern is, and now that we're on this losing streak, so th- this kind of ties back to the first point, but I think it's really, really relevant. So one, we put this losing streak into the world. If you listened last week, we said that they were shooting sky high. At some point, this was going to come back down to earth. That's what's happening. They're coming back down to earth. Wait, there was PDO talk last week? We there talked what? about save percentage regression last week. No way. No one, no one was talking about that. This stats podcast. I, I or the stats that you're... by the stats. <laughs> right? I, I don't know if I can bring graphs to the podcast medium. <laughs> so we did, we did say that this was going to happen. And I did say I hope that this happens before the playoffs so that we don't have to see this happen during the playoffs. And I remember but, telling you that, that that's not how luck works. <laughs> three games later, here we are. Ian Graff at the beginning was like, hey, I thought they looked really good at five on five. They got goalied. This is what this is what getting goalied and, and coming back down to earth happens. But a few good things come out of it where we can see what they look like when they're losing. I think some of the the talk and um, some of the things being said may be a little bit more sobering now, which is good. This is a good time for it to happen coming up to the trade deadline. We'll talk about that very, very shortly. But before we get into potential targets, just some of the things maybe coming back down to earth and seeing what they look like on the other side of things, as opposed to, you know, every game, Jason Spezza and Joe Thornton getting a point and everybody being the best player on the team and this being the best Leafs defense we've seen in 20 years and blah, blah, blah. Ray Ferrar sending out a tweet that gets 2,000 likes after the Leafs 
got hammered in the second and third period and shots and scoring chances. I'm thinking, wait, is the defense that great or did they have a strong yeah. goaltending performance? <laughs> right. And we were talking about that a bit last week, but it's harder to get those points across when they're winning and everyone's just like, you're being a huge grump and whatever the case is. And it's not saying, you know, what are the potential downfalls leading into the playoffs? Like these kind of, kind of things need to be addressed. So a few things kind of stood out to me, just looking at the ice time and allocation and how things are playing out now that they're actually losing a few games. So the first one that surprised me, you just talked about your boy, Travis Dermott, his ice time remained low, which surprised me. I thought, Hey, if they're down, this guy's got to play a little bit more. He's a little bit more on the offensive side. You would and think in his ability to keep pucks in at the offensive blue line, play a tight gap, you know, just make sure that the, the ice is tilted. Even if it improves the other team's chances of getting an odd man rush, it probably improves your chances of actually scoring a goal. And he's still... It's, it's reached the point with Dermott where they don't trust him defensively at all. They don't play him on the penalty kill. And I, I get that when you have... Jake Muzzin on the left side on PK1, and then you have TJ Brody. He's really good at taking away passes through the middle of the ice. So you're not going to play Dermot on the power play. Now you're not playing him on the penalty kill. So he's a sheltered third-pairing defenseman who doesn't get special teams minutes. That's, what, 12, 13 minutes a night? That's nothing. And it's like you're not going to play much when you're defending, and you're not going to play much when we need a goal. So it's almost, you know, what is the point of your existence here? It's just casual five-on-five play. And I'm not saying he's not capable of more. I think he is capable of more. But it was surprising to me that it wasn't, hey, we're down. We need a little bit more offense. This is a guy with some skill. Let's get him a little bit more ice time. I kind of figured we just didn't see him getting played more because they haven't really been in this situation very often. But now that they have been, and they were losing games for – or they were uh, trailing, I should say, for long stretches of games the past three games. And he still wasn't playing very much. So I think that's a bit of a, to me, just in terms of his future here, I mean, that's a bit of a red flag for me. I've already kind of in my head put him in Seattle's top four. (laughs) Just because I'm thinking in Toronto, I just it doesn't seem to be working out for whatever reason. And you know that Kyle Dubas is looking at his, you know, the, the, the numbers that I'm looking at in the neutral zone with Travis Dermott that show, wow, this guy's incredible at defending the rush and, you know, forcing the other team to dump it in. And his team has the puck more often because of those types of plays. But one thing that's interesting about Dermott is that even though he's good at exiting the defensive zone with possession, he's not very good at entering the offensive zone with possession. And kind of with Dermott, if, if you split the ice into two halves, once he crosses center ice, I'm not sure how effective he is. Is he someone who breaks down a defense? Is he someone, even in the offensive zone, when the Leafs are cycling and they're doing their cool little motion thing in the offensive zone where they try to get everybody open, they try to create passing lanes. You'd think with Dermott's skating ability that he'd be a bit more dynamic in those situations. And to me, he doesn't look dangerous at all. What's weird is that sometimes Zach Bogosian is the more dangerous offensive player on that pairing. And that should not be the case. So it's not weird in that I'll say Zach Bogosian was drafted third overall. Okay, and, so was Eric Goodbranson. Come on. Yeah, but he, but Zach Gojin was skilled. And when he broke into the league, he had a really good rookie season, like point-wise. He put it's up points. kind of like Tyler Myers, where like he peaked offensively earlier. Yeah, pretty much, right? But Zach Bogosian, I'm not saying he's skilled, but he's shown at times. The funny thing is, because Zach Bogosian is around, is around my age, right? And so I have a bunch of, bunch of friends who played in the OHL around his time that he was there in Peterborough. And a number of them will say to me that Zach Bogosian was pretty much the best player or one of the best players that they ever played against by far. He was just head and shoulders above everyone else. But they'll also say in part because, you know, they were boys and Zach Bogosian was already a fully grown man. I mean, that guy's I mean, that's a bear. still kind of the case when you see him with his yeah. shirt off. That's just, like, he's a big guy, yeah. but with he him, settled it's, into it's his weird role. because there are times he'll pick up a puck in the defensive zone. It looks like he has no clue what he's doing. And then there's times where he'll toe drag a guy and make a great play off the rush. And I'm just, there's not much consistency in terms of the skill level there. I don't get it when it's like Martin Marincin, who in the AHL, all of a sudden he's because he's Mario Lemieux. And then you call him up to the NHL and he can't do anything. So 
I have a thing about Martin Marinson. I think he's an unreal practice player. Just just a guess. So a practice player, for those who don't know, are guys who just look unbelievable in practice because, you know, their skill set, everything shines. And I look at Martin Marinson. He's big. He's pretty fluid considering how big he is. Yeah, he moves around okay. I've never seen his speed be like a true liability. Well, it's part of the reason he's always defended the neutral zone so well. He doesn't, no one gets behind him despite the yeah. fact that he can't really skate that well. Yeah, I'm not saying he's an elite skater, but he's a solid skater. He moves around decently. His he gets himself are... to the right spots. He stands in the right spot, Ron Hansy yeah. style. Yeah, and his hands are good for what he is. He can, you know, he's a decent shot. We've seen him make skill plays. Did we just say that Martin Marincin has good hands? Now I'm not yeah. sure where we're going with this, but it's kind of like Zach no, Goes. It's when he pulls something out of his bag of tricks and you go, wait a minute, you can do this? If you watch his AHL highlights, and trust me, I don't like Martin Marinson, so I'm not trying to sit here and defend this guy or say that he should play on the Leafs because I have made it abundantly clear for like a year and a half now. When Martin Marinson's not their seventh defenseman, they'll be a solid team, but this could not be their go-to guy when an injury occurs. And he's my not My first anymore, ever article was about Martin Marinson. He's kind of my... Uh... The, my analytical linchpin who I, but, I, I hitched my wagon to him and I, I feel like I should have picked someone else. But if you watch his AHL highlights, you definitely should have picked someone else. But if you watch his AHL highlights, he has some plays like stunning plays. Real is nuts. That's why I told you his hands are legit. So I think in practice, I think what happened over the past few years is they would look at this guy in practice and say, he's pretty sick, but in the game mentally, he just was not there. You could tell he's, he looked very hesitant. He, you know, at times in fairness, he would be in, in tough spots and be, Oh, a guy got injured in the playoffs, go in and play. And the moment you could tell it was just too much for him. Uh, repeated occasions. But I think he was a sick practice player. Honestly, I think we're wasting way too much time talking about Martin Marincin here. And I'm his agent. I'm, I'm a guy who's big Martin Marincin truther. But here's the thing. You brought up Travis Dermott. You brought up defense and the fact that he, Dermott's getting, what, 12 minutes a night at this point, basically. They're not yeah. playing him. One guy who could potentially come in and fill some of those minutes, Matthias Eckholm, is someone they're rumored to be linked to. And this is where we get into our trade deadline talk. Elliot Friedman put out in his 31 Thoughts column, that the Leafs are rumored to be interested in half of the league. Matthias Ekholm, Philip Forsberg, Michael Granlin, Eric Stahl, and for some ungodly reason, Mark Stahl's name was thrown in there as if he's still an <laughs> asset in the National Hockey League. That confused me. But let's get into trade deadline talk here. Which of those names intrigues you the most? Uh, and I'm, we haven't even mentioned Taylor Hall. I mean, anyone who doesn't say Philip Forsberg is kidding themselves. I mean... If if that, Taylor Hall's an option, I would personally lean in that direction. But over Philip Forsberg, yes, over really? Philip Forsberg. Well, first case. of all, I think left wing is a bigger need for the Leafs than right wing. Is that the only reason? I also think Taylor Hall is a better player than Philip Forsberg in a vacuum. In in the last couple of years, it's been really difficult to 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 measure Taylor Hall's impact because. If you look at five and five metrics of Jack Eichel, they've been great. But if you look at shooting percentage, it hasn't been great. If you look at him in Arizona, there are some indicators that show, if you look at some of the closer numbers, that the quality scoring chances he was generating should lead to points in the future. But the players he was playing with weren't converting on those chances. If Taylor Hall's passing the puck to William Nylander and John Tavares instead of the scrubs that he's playing with over the last couple of years, does that lead to heart trophy level production? Maybe not quite. But I'd imagine it would be that first line level, you know, top 10 winger in the world level that we've seen in the past. And I tend to like betting on talent. And I think that Taylor Hall is the best talent, the most talented player available this year in the trade deadline. So it's funny because people will say, well, I mean, it's his fault partly. But has Taylor Hall ever not played in a dumpster? Like, seriously. And no offense to those teams, but that's the honest truth. I mean, Edmonton, there's no more words that need to be said. Jersey, who Taylor Hall basically blacked out for a season. And he's the kind of guy that, that what happened that season is the kind of thing that I point to with every other player that's in a dumpster. 
and basically say, at some point, are they going to Taylor Hall black out for a season and just drag the carcass of their team into the playoffs? Jack I Eichel thought, tried to do it last year. He couldn't quite do it because the rest of his team sucked. <laughs> I kind of thought Jack Eichel was going to do it this season. What I did not know is that he reported to camp injured already. Ooh. And I think the whole thing just kind of went south from there. But I kind of thought it was on the table for Jack Eichel this year in terms of oh, shortened season, interesting division. Maybe Jack Eichel does it this year. But I think he's just legitimately looked like wrong. So um, anyways, point being, and then he went to Arizona. I mean, Arizona won a play, play in round last year, right? Okay, come like, on. What, I'm saying Arizona went as far as they could have gone that you could have reasonably expected with Taylor Hall. That's like, okay. Much better way of wording it. I, I, was, yeah. I wasn't sure where you were going with that. No, one. just to say, like, I don't know what more you could have expected from Taylor Hall or, or that Arizona team than winning a play in round and then losing the next round. Like the, that was about the best they could do. And now he's in Buffalo, which is a total dumpster. So, you know, I sympathize with them because that, that year in New Jersey was ridiculous and he's a really good player. So I like Taylor Hall. I think he'd be really interesting, but I also love Philip Forsberg and he's been an animal in the playoffs he signed for another year, which is nice. That's this a big deal, no. especially when we're talking about rentals, giving up assets for a guy who's not even going to be on your team after the playoffs. I like the idea of getting two playoff runs out of a Philip Forsberg or out of a Matias Ekholm. That's what the Leafs did with Muzzin. That's what Tampa did with Ryan McDonough. And then they re-signed those players. So that's something yeah. to consider. And I think, I think you could look at Philip Forsberg and say, like, you got to play the left side. I think you can. I like his game in terms of... William Nylander can move over to the left side. I mean, uh, Keith has brought this up, that positions in the modern game aren't what they used to be. Players are interchanging roles so often now that if you're a talented puck carrier who can carry the puck through the left side of the ice, through the right side of the ice, and kind of make a play, it doesn't really matter as long as guys are structurally positioned well. I guess that would be the bigger concern. So my thing with it, and I mentioned it this week as well, because I saw that quote from him, and I know that that's been something that they're on as an organization, as a bender, you know, positions, whatever, throw it out the window. But it's not entirely true. And the only time that it actually matters is breaking out of your zone and D zone. I don't care who's on the left or right side in the offensive zone. That's a total waste of time to even debate Sometimes that. Sometimes oh. swings down behind his net, picks it up. It's like, what position is he? I'm like, he's the puck carrier now. That's what yeah. position he is. <laughs> yeah, who cares in those scenarios? But... Nylander on the left side on the breakout in the D zone, not a play that I love, right? Well, any player on their off wing in the D zone, picking up a puck on their backhand and trying to make a play, it's a tough play. It's why you prefer to have players on their strong side. If you look at stuff like Corsi, expected goals, players will tend to perform better on their strong sides just because it makes the game easier, moving the puck up the ice with possession. The reason that a lot of players like being on their offside is because you can rip one-timers, and if you're a 30-goal kind of talent, maybe there's some benefits there. Yeah, so when, when he sits there and he says, oh, positions don't really matter, positionless game, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, eh, I don't know if that – I think that you're selling me, you know, magic beans a little bit here because it does matter and it does impact – you know, if you're looking in the playoffs and it's like, you know, I won't – pick on Nylander, let's just say Mitch Marner, whatever. I don't care who it is, but they're on their wrong side and then they don't break out and the other team scores. You don't think that's going to be a storyline and a thing? Of course it's going to be a thing. Backhanded pizza into the middle of the ice. Yeah. I'm not going to sit there and, and say, oh, they lost a game because Mitch Marner was crossing center on the left side instead of the right. I don't care about that. But it's about getting the puck out of the zone. And it does matter for that. So when we talk about those things, Zach Hyman is is – pretty legit on the left side, but he he'll turn his body completely. So he's basically facing the goal line and he collects it on his forehand. And then he like hooks up the ice or he'll go back to the defender. And then they'll like cross ice play to the actual strong side winger. So he's kind of figured out how to do it, but I mean, he's another guy just looks he's better. Also figured out how to run his own line, which is never something I thought I'd say, which is yeah, just wild. But one one thing that we talked about this when Bourne came on the podcast, I'd mentioned this just very, very quickly towards the end when we were talking about guys, but I had mentioned Matthias Ekholm and more in the sense that there's nobody to really put pressure on the top four. Like the top four is just, it is what it is. Last night, Justin Hole played the second least that he has played this season. 
And I mean, yeah, they, they switched up played... the pairings. They went Dermot Hall and then Muzzin Bogosian. Not quite sure yeah. why they did that. And he still played top four minutes, generally speaking. I mean, he's struggled the last few games. At some That's point, he say. was going to come back down to earth a little bit. And I think that he has. And he's still generally, I mean, he's a good player. He's making $2 million a year. He's on a good contract. Some of the I know takes this is on one him. of your big things. The fact that he plays all of his minutes with Jake Muzzin, and that makes it very difficult to assess whether or not you're impacting the outcome because Jake Muzzin has such a long track record of dragging crappy partners to positive results. And let's be clear on this. Uh, this is not even up for debate as far as I'm concerned. Five on five, Jake Muzzin is the Leafs' best defenseman. I, I don't I think mean, it's if, close, honestly. Yeah. I mean, if anyone wants to debate me on this, feel free. His production is there. I actually think he Morgan has Morgan Riley has 19 points in his last 21 games, Anthony. I think Jake Muzzin actually has more points than him at five on five the past year and a half. I'm pretty points sure he does. 60, I know he's higher. I remember looking it up the other day and going, oh, oh wow, Jake sure. Muzzin, offensive juggernaut. Let's go. He plays, generally speaking, he plays tougher minutes. He's the actual guy you want in the shot. If they're playing Winnipeg in the first round or whoever – you're going to say, Jake Muzzin, you're getting the toughest assignment, not Morgan Riley. In his last few playoff series, he's been matched up against the other team's top line until he got injured last year. Rightfully so. And then when he got injured, Justin Hole really struggled. I don't remember. You moved Travis Dermott up the lineup, didn't work as well as you would have hoped. Then Morgan Riley, I think, was taking more of the tough shifts. Again, didn't work out as well as you would have hoped. I don't remember a single play of impact that Justin Hole made in the playoffs last year. I'm not saying he was actively bad. one that necessarily lends itself to thinking, oh, wow, it's more of making the simple play in the neutral zone or the simple play in a puck retrieval. Yeah, which is all great stuff. But the way people talk about him sometimes, unreal defense. You have to make impact plays to be unreal. What makes Justin Hole or Justin Muzzin, sorry, really good? Or Jake Muzzin. Justin, Justin Muzzin. Muzzin. What Jake say? Muzzin. Jake Muzzin makes legitimate impact plays. You notice him. He has a presence on the ice, and he makes things happen. He Justin holds out. His... Makes really subtle plays too. Jake yeah. Muzzin's the, like the master of just like a, a slick little takeaway and slip pass underneath in the D zone. Yeah, but he'll he can go out there and kind of change the the flow of a game with a big hit. He can produce offense. He's got a big shot. I mean, we've talked about. Muzzin just sporadically throughout this podcast so far this series this season about how great he is he is he's awesome right so that's who Justin Hole's playing with that in part helps him look really good I'm not saying he's a bad player but he's he's boosted by his partner so sometimes some of the takes need to pump the brake I'm not saying I would go all in on Matias Ekholm because I think he's going to cost a ton and he's another guy that is under contract for next season but just that general premise of a guy who can put a little more pressure on the top four and shake up those pairings potentially at times, because this is basically it. This is the defense through, you know, hell or high water. And it's, it doesn't seem to be really changing or impacted depending on even the score, the situation. It's just, this is the group. Yeah, and I mean, I guess if you really need a goal, you're going to want Riley Brody out there a bit more often. If you're trying to prevent a goal, you're probably going to get more Muzzin Hall. But I I like the idea of bringing a Matias Ekholm because, again, you want to add talent any way you can add it. But when you consider the price and the assets and would you be better spending those uh, resources on a forward who can help your second line? Or would you want to bring in a Michael Granlin to help out your third line center so that you can play Kerfoot at left wing with that Tavares Nylander pair where it actually works really well. That brings me up. That brings up the next point I really wanted to bring up. Uh, We're going to get to overreaction underreaction here. Pierre Engvall as the Leafs third line center. It's been fun. This Mikheyev Engvall lengthy kind of third line, especially with Hyman there, who's just absolutely dragging them to some great results at five and five. I've talked to a few people who are really concerned that the Leafs are, are content with Pierre Engvall as their third-line center. Are we overreacting or underreacting to the fact that he seems to be penciled in as their 3C right now? So part, that partly depends on where Zach Hyman's going to end up. So we haven't talked about this too much, and I'm not trying to answer your question with another question, but it does play into it. So last night, Joe Thornton played 
something thir- 13 minutes and change 13 and a half minutes i think it was 13 29 or something like that he hasn't looked great lately he hasn't because it's about you know again reality hitting a little bit now um and then they had to move zach hyman up right rightfully so so in part i say to that does this strategy really make sense where joe thornton is opening up on the top line every night and then eventually it's like oh no i guess we have to move zach hyman up because we're down and we need a spark or whatever the case is, or let's wait till the third period. doesn't make any sense. Right. Well, and what if the strategy is to try to find a way to get something out of Thornton's passing, but then in high leverage minutes, you want to get Hyman more ice time. If, if you can find a way to make it work, is it the, worst in the playoffs? Thing? They're all high leverage minutes though. That's a fair point. Really, right. Really Beginning of the game, it's high leverage. So I just, I don't like the idea of sitting on it. So to that, I say, Ultimately, perfect world to me. I think you probably have Joe Thornton on that second line. Yeah, and they haven't really tried Hyman. that yet. They haven't they tried haven't. him with Tavares Nylander. I'd be curious to see what that looks like. Me too. I think that's more of the fit, though, especially the way they deploy that line. Yeah, it's more of right? a sheltered line compared to the Matthews Marner line that just seems to get all the minutes, all the high leverage minutes, all the yeah against the other team's best top, uh, top players. Yeah. Offensive zone faceoff, one leg over the boards. Joe Thornton, hop the bench. John Tavares hopped the bench. William Nylander hopped the bench. But to that point, I'm saying if Zach Hyman is on the first line, which is where I think he should be, and I think they got to stop kidding themselves a little bit with this whole situation, then, yeah, I think we're probably underreacting to Pierre Engvall's 3C because some sort of line of, you know, Mikheyev, Engvall, Kerfoot is not doing it for me in the playoffs. So underreacting to that. But it's with the caveat that, I think Zach Hyman needs to move up. Now, if they add in, you know, Taylor Hall, Philip Forsberg, insert player, and Zach Hyman is going to be a mainstay on the third line, which I think is a bad approach just as an aside. I then- like the idea of it. If you have a third line, that's kind of awesome in a different way from your top two scoring lines. I mean, the, the numbers right now are super positive for that Mikheyev, Engvall, Hyman line. I think a lot of it is Hyman, but... Yeah. Again, if you can use Hyman to kind of drag that third line to being a strong third line, is that not a good way of using him? It is, but I think that Hyman on that first line with Matthews and Marner is arguably top one line in the league. Maybe not top one, but I, I see what you're saying. What's interesting is that the, uh, the shots and chances as of right now, I think are better with Thornton than they are with Hyman, but that's to be determined if that's going to last. Yeah, but they're also, they're also playing at, I mean – the situation is set up for those kind of numbers to look good for Thornton's. Yeah, you're going to start. The he first is more period. sheltered than, yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. And he missed a few games. Then he came back. And you could tell when he came back, he was super excited. He was fired up. But now he's a bit more into the grind of the season. That game against Vancouver, the third and fourth night game that we referenced early, was a little, was a little bit of a red flag for me in terms of just how he did not, not, he just did not look like a guy that could play. Well, he's that 41 grind. years old. You got to yeah. be giving him more rest. I mean, I'm surprised they haven't been load managing more. Yeah, I agree completely. I'm not. He, I'm not even saying he's at fault. It's just the situation is what it is at this point. My concern is that in the playoffs, that's what it is. You play every other night. It's a grind. And I don't know if you're going to sit there and, and just say, you know, round two, round three, corpse of Joe Thornton playing every other night on line one with our two best players. 60% Corsi, man. I'm not going to complain too much. Is that going to keep up, though, over the grind of a playoff? We'll see. Yeah, that's that's why I want to – I don't know. I'd like to see Thornton get some more off nights. I would love the Thornton-Matthews-Marner line to be something that works long-term because it allows you to do a lot more cool things with the rest of your lineup. Long-term means, like, through this playoffs and that's it, right? <laughs> yeah, by the way, long-term means, like, the next month or two. I, I'm just, yeah. in my head, I'm thinking, man, this poor guy looks like he's going to collapse one of these nights. I just, I, I feel <laughs> like I need to get him a few more nights off. But let, let's get to our next topic here in the overreaction, underreaction. Austin Matthews' wrist injury. Ever since jamming his wrist into the boards, he's looked very uh, hesitant. He doesn't look like he wants to shoot. If you look at the way that they're deploying him on the power play now, He's no longer on the half wall running things from the perimeter. He's actually getting to the middle of the ice. And basically, if it's not the bumper roll, it's the net front roll. Which, by the way, he scored two goals like that the other night. 
despite not attempting one of his crazy race shots. He just, he got one on a deflection from Morgan Riley and the other was a pass basically to the crease where he just kind of, he didn't even get a lot on it. And what's crazy with Austin Matthews is that most of his value is from that ridiculous shot, that curl and drag. You can change the angle on it and still get a ton of power on it. He isn't comfortable doing that right now. He's basically lost his superpower that makes him one of the best offensive players in the league. And he's still finding a way to take over games with his passing. He can, he can still get his stick in there on the stick lifts. This is bizarre to me. Just watching a pro athlete who we all know his biggest strength, and now he's injured and he doesn't have it anymore, and he's trying to find a way to, to get results. Part of me wonders if they should even be playing him, if they should be resting him. But the fact that he can score two goals in a game where he's not even comfortable shooting the puck, I mean, maybe that just goes to show you how talented this guy is. Yeah, so early on when he came back against Vancouver, he had a play where he curled it in. You probably remember, and he hit the bar, right? It, he just uh, curled yeah, in a yeah. shot, and he hit the bar, and I was, okay, Matthews is back. And um, I, was, I was, you know, sitting there thinking, all right, no worries. The, the wrist is good. But since then, you're right, the shot hasn't really been there. He's been just – he's been skating to the front of the net on the power play or the bumper roll or whatever roles you don't want to see him in. I don't really care that he scored a goal on a tip. You don't sit there and have Austin Matthews and say, go to the front of the net, take abuse, tip pucks in and try to get rebounds. I don't he's think made... that's what they're planning on doing for the rest of the season. No, I think it's no, right no, of now course. That he, they know that he's not comfortable shooting. Right. And yeah, I'm not suggesting that's a long-term role by any stretch. Um, it's really just Speaking the concern. Long-term, like long-term for Thornton, long-term for Matthews here. Yeah. Right. It's just really the concern that it's happening in general, because if he's if he's healthy, I mean, there's no world and you could sit there and say, well, it worked. Uh, no, like you you have Austin Matthews, you say circle the top of the circle. You know, with some speed and come down and you score, however, you you shoot it wherever you want to and score. You go far you side, the you cross go side. Pass to Marner. He does yeah. something with it. Yeah. That's what he's there. So I think I think we're probably underreacting. I think that's a legit issue. And the fact that he's playing tells me it's one of those issues where uh, it's not going to get worse, but it is going to linger. And how long is that going to linger for? Because, you know, at some point, it's either just going to linger and, and you're going to say, you got to suck it up and you got to get back to shooting the pucks properly. Or it's going to get better, but we don't really know. And those injuries are concerning. Those ones that linger are so frustrating. They just sit there. And they impact your play, just little plays, little things that you may or may not be doing because of the injury. It's a concern. I'm, I'm worried about it. All right. I've got a stat of the week here to cheer everybody up before we get out of here. Cause I know that we tend to be the oh, regression to the mean, trying to pick all the, the major criticisms in the Leafs right now. Uh, Jason Spezza, I think his season right now is uh, going very unnoticed for just how well he's producing in limited minutes. Here's the stat of the week. The leader for the Leafs in points per 60 at 5-on-5 five five is Jason Spezza. The leader for the Leafs in points per 60 on the power play is Jason Spezza. I don't know how long it's going to last, but it's pretty freaking awesome. Yeah, there was one point in the game last night where he was kind of basically playing the point, and the way that he was walking it and the way every everybody on the jets reacted and respected his shot which which they totally should do because he has a bomb and he, he's just, willing to let it go from distance and you know that it can either create a rebound sometimes it finds a hole i've i've been kind of on this drum i don't think they move him up enough when they're losing yeah i mean they're moving thornton up i mean they, they played him on the first line right away and spezza doesn't seem to get those off offensive opportunities and when you look at how productive he's been in games where you're trailing, you should probably be playing Jason Spezza a lot more. One thing I've kind of, we haven't had a, a, like a large sample on this, but I've, I've always kind of wondered about since last year is we haven't seen a ton of what Keith can do adjustment-wise when things aren't going well, right? The, the way that he played game five against Columbus made no sense. Everybody knows that, you know. Nylander, go play is on the top line. Nylander playing center didn't go well. Yeah, you haven't played center all year. Go play center in this elimination game. That's do or die. Didn't really make sense. We've seen him go back to... When he went back to that this year, the logic on it just made no sense to... He, he Tavares, Matthews, Marner? 
Yeah, and it was it was because of injury to Thornton and, and Hyman and whatever. And he said something like, you know, we were trying to keep Matthews and Marner going. I'm like, you think that Matthews and Marner need to have John Tavares on the left wing to keep going? I don't know. Sometimes <laughs> like, game-to-game game coaches do things like this. Every coach pulls up the lineup blender every once in a while. Yeah, which is fine. I just – point being is we haven't seen a ton of sample of him having – to adjust because they've been losing or they're in games where they're losing. And we've kind of mentioned a few things throughout the podcast where it's been, Oh, you know, I thought this guy would play more. Or I thought this would shift up or whatever the case is. And it hasn't happened too much. So I'm, I'm interested at this point, you know, I bring it up as a bit of a flag, but it's more to say, I'm kind of curious to see how he's going to handle it. Cause yeah, sometimes I've just been, huh? I didn't, I didn't, see that coming or I didn't think you would play it that way so in certain scenarios I'd be yeah you should probably move Jason Spets up because you're losing and this guy has 16 points in 26 games or whatever it is that's a 50 so, point pace across an 82 game season he's playing like 11 minutes a night it's crazy yeah, yeah so, so you should probably play more I mean I get that he's old but in yeah. offensive situations find a way to get this guy more touches because like you said in the offensive zone I mean, I talk about his zone entries all the time where he just kind of goes straight. He goes north-south and he gains the zone. And he's like, get out of my way. I'm just going to gain the zone. We're going to make a play after I, I gain the zone. You talk about when he's kind of quarterbacking things from the, the half wall and he can bait someone with the shot and then find the passing lane to someone on the other side of the ice. It's a smart player and he's still got that passing ability. I get why you want to shelter him defensively because I saw him try to catch Connor McDavid on the back track and it didn't go very well. But it, who would it go again, well for <laughs> I know, right? How many players can catch Connor McDavid on the back track? When you're, if you're losing this well yeah. and you're not playing a lot of minutes, any other team will be saying, hey, get this guy more minutes. He's our, he's our points leader, you know, points per 60. Get him more minutes. Jason Spets is your points leader right now in terms of uh, per minute. So I think you need to find a way to get him more ice time in offensive situations. Yeah. If you're losing, he should be playing more. Bottom line. Jason Spets is really good, and that's how we're going to end the podcast. <laughs> So uh, two more games against Winnipeg. We didn't get a chance to really dive into their team, but I'm thinking we'll do that next week after getting two more, uh, two more games against the Winnipeg Jets. I remember reading somewhere that nine of the Leafs' next 23 games were against the Winnipeg Jets. So we're going to get a pretty big sample here in terms of how well do the Leafs stack up against the Winnipeg Jets, which, in your opinion, is a team that they're probably going to run into in the playoffs. Connor Hellebuck, uh, Pierre-Luc Dubois, there's some talent there. I don't trust their blue line at all, but they're a team that kind of concerns me, especially if Connor Hellebuck gets hot. Yeah, me too. A good goalie, and they have guys that can find the back of the net. I think that's, that's always a cause for concern. Yeah, Kyle Connor gets hot. Nikolai Ehlers gets hot. Sometimes that's the story. Yeah, that's really that simple. They have the best goalie. So stay tuned. We're going to watch a few more Leafs-Jets games this week, and then we'll be back next week to talk about some hockey, and maybe Jason Spetz will still be first in points per 60 on the Leafs and last in ice time. That just seems to be his thing. We'll be back next week, everyone. Uh, enjoy your week, Anthony. Enjoy your coffee this morning. Maybe we'll yeah, do another what... morning podcast next week. I don't know. Did this go well? I, I guess we'll find out in the feedback, but what do we say to end? Uh, like, subscribe. <laughs> Yeah, Whatever. smash that like button. Yeah, go on iTunes. Give us a five-star review. Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, we'll be back. Uh, enjoy your week. You've been listening to the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast. For news, opinion, and analysis, make sure to go to mapleleafshotstove.com and join the conversation. <laughs>